Thank you, worship team. We are in a series in the book of Corinthians. We started last fall, and we've been mostly going chapter by chapter, but I wanted to skip ahead last week. So we started with uh, thinking about the resurrection in chapter 15, because here we are in this little segment before Easter, two weeks away now. And I thought we would uh, skip a few chapters and get to, to chapter 15 and spend four weeks reading through these 58 verses. And David did a great job talking about the first 11, and now this morning I'm going to read verse 12 through verse 19. So 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 19. If you're using the Blue Pew Bible in front of you, it's page 961. So let's stand together as we read God's Word. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Let's take a moment to sit down and reflect on these few verses together. Several years ago, I bought this book. I don't know if you can see the title, What If? And the subtitle is, The World's Foremost Military Historians Imagine What Might Have Been. And so if you like history, you like these kinds of things. So what if this battle had gone a different way? And 20 chapters of what ifs, looking at these major battles or major conquests, and saying, well, what if it turned a different way? And the very first chapter is when uh, Babylon or Assyria invaded Jerusalem in 700 B.C. What if, what if it had turned a different way? What would have happened to the Jews at that point? And then what would have happened to the world? The very last chapter is about World War II. What if D-Day hadn't been successful? So it's a great question for historians, but I know it's a question that you use and I use. Do you not? You sit around after dinner with some friends and you have a long conversation and invariably somebody says, well, what if? What if? And you start imagining or you start reimagining your autobiography. And so this happens plenty of times. I I might sit around and say, well, Well, what if my dad hadn't died in an airplane accident when I was four? What would have that done to my family? What trajectory would that have put my family on? What if in 1981, Nancy had gone to Gordon College in Boston, instead of at the very last second getting accepted to a much better university, Furman University in Greenville, South Carolina, where she got to meet certain wonderful people. <laughs> well, I mean, what if, what, if, what if she goes to Boston and I go to Furman? 
what happens? You have these conversations. In 2002, January of 2002, I came home and I told Nancy, hey, this thing that we thought we were going to call Christ Community Church, it's not going to work. It just unraveled in this one meeting. What if Claude Eford hadn't come to my house and convinced me that, hey, we should give it a shot? You play this game, do you not? What if? What if something had happened or hadn't happened? But, you know, when you're done, nothing's really changed, right? I mean, your past hasn't changed, your, your present hasn't changed, your future hasn't changed. It's just kind of a, a fun game. It's a fun question that we all like to roll around in our heads. But the Apostle Paul asked this question, but it's a deadly serious question. And the question is, what if the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Christ, what if it had never happened? What if it was just a myth? What if it was just some kind of made-up story? What if it was just some kind of symbol instead of something in substance? And see, the answer to the question, it's not, it, doesn't, it really does matter. It matters to your today and how you would live today, and it greatly matters for your future. And so the Apostle Paul is going to borrow this question that we use, and he's going to apply it to the people at Corinth. Now, let's get our, our bearings first, so, because there are new people here, and they're not in the ser- series. But just in terms of what's happening here, the Apostle Paul is a great evangelist. And he, in about 50 A.D., went to this major port city called Corinth, it's in, and it's in Greece. And he stayed there several years. He was a preacher. He developed relationships. People met the Lord. And he actually planted a church there. And a few years later, he decided he needed to keep his traveling schedule up, and he moves on. And as soon as he leaves, the church begins to fracture and splinter. And really fractured and splintered over people. There were certain groups of people who were more for this person than that person, and they just began to have these little little factions in the church. And then they also began to fracture over practical questions. I mean, we're all new to the faith, so how does this... How is this supposed to look now in our lives? And so we've looked at several of these. What, what about marriage and sexual immorality? We have this one sexual ethic by growing up in Corinth, but now that we've become Christians, we're supposed to live somehow differently. What is that? What about Christian freedom? What about the Lord's Supper? What are we supposed to do with that? What about spiritual gifts, chapter 12? So all these questions they have that are fracturing the church, they decide they're going to write a letter to Paul and say, hey, can you help us answer some of these questions? And he writes down the answers to his questions, and that's how we have 1 Corinthians. And the very last question he answers is about the resurrection. And you can see what's happening here. Apparently there were some people inside the church who didn't believe the resurrection actually happened. I mean, people don't really rise from the dead, do they? So, I mean, Paul told us this information, but we've never seen anybody rise from the dead. So it must not be true. It must be something that's like symbolic or it's, that's not the real part of the story or the real point of the story. So they're asking this question, maybe Christ didn't really raise from the dead. And his way of responding to it is to ask, well, what if? What if he didn't rise from the dead? And he begins this whole discussion about the resurrection in the first few in the first few verses that David spoke about last week. Let's just look back at them. Chapter 15, verse 1. 
Now, I want to remind you, brothers, about the gospel. That's the word where we get good news. I preached some good news to you. You received it. And you you were saved, verse 2. And here's what I declared, verse 3. These are things that were on first importance. I mean, there are a lot of important things, but this this is at the very core. First of all, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And then He appeared to people. appeared to Cephas or Peter. Then He appeared to 500 people at one time. Uh, verse 6, and then he appeared to James, his brother, and then he appeared, last of all, to Paul, verse 8. That's the core. That's the thing of, of first importance. And there are several takeaways here that we need to remember. But first, that, that he preached the gospel. And the gospel, we have to remember, is not advice. It's news. It's information. Paul didn't come in and say, hey, you kind of have a worldview or a philosophy, and I'd like to give you a new worldview or a new, new philosophy. No, he's coming in like a news reporter saying, I saw something, and I'm just reporting what I saw. So when you're telling somebody about Jesus, you're not, telling them, you're not giving them advice. You're not giving them a, a, a philosophy. You're telling them something actually happened. And what that was, was that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. He came to this planet. He lived a perfect life. He died and He actually rose again. That's information. That's news. It's it's not advice. And that's one of the things that separates Christianity from religion. Religion is advice on how you get to God. I'm religious, so I do these things and I get to God. But Christianity is news about how God has come to you. It's a pretty big difference. So the first thing we want to remember is that when, we, when we're talking about the gospel, it's, it's news, it's not advice. And secondly, you notice it said twice here, all this happened according to the Scriptures. So this event actually happened, this news event happened, but it's all been telegraphed from way back in Genesis. And you could have seen it coming. Now, a lot of the people who read through the Old Testament Scriptures, they didn't quite see Jesus. be like seeing a shadow, but they couldn't really quite imagine the same thing. But now, now that you've seen Jesus, you read back into the Old Testament, and you see Christ in all of these different ways. And let me just give you one example. Genesis chapter 37. Joseph. You remember this? Joseph and his coat of what? Many colors. He's the faithful, favored son of the father. And he comes with his coat of many colors to the father. And the father says, I need you to check on my unfaithful other sons. Can you take a journey and see how they're doing? And as Joseph comes, if you remember the story, they strip him of his robe. They sell him into slavery and they give him up for dead. Now, you're already piecing it together, are you not? The the favored, faithful son with this outer garment given by the father is coming, and he gets stripped of that robe. He gets sold into slavery. He's given up for dead until many years later, the unfaithful brothers are starving, and they have to go down to Egypt, the most powerful country on the planet at that point. And guess what they find out? Joseph is at the right hand of the king, 
and he's going to save his unfaithful brothers. The, the, the son that they thought was dead is actually alive, and he's going to not punish his unfaithful brothers. He's going to save his unfaithful brothers. And at the very end of Genesis chapter 50, you know what it says. He says, you meant it for evil, but God, what did he do? He meant it for good. He meant it for good to save not only you, but many lives. And now we say, well, we can see the gospel. This is the gospel telegraphed in the Old Testament, and now we see it clearly. So when Paul's saying, according to the scriptures, you just look back in the Old Testament and you can see it. Now, I was thinking about this last night, just laying in bed, trying to think through the sermon. And you know how you have a piece of music and it's called variations on a theme? If you're a musician, you know this. There's a certain theme in the music, and you would play it, and then it, you would play it a little bit differently, but you would hear the theme underneath it. And if you would imagine the Bible as one great musical score, you'll hear variations on the theme of death, resurrection, and restoration. That theme is underlying this whole musical score and the crescendo is in the gospel. So that's the resurrection. That's the key point that Paul wants to, come, come, to, to communicate before he comes to verse 12, where he says, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, I've just told you about that, I, can, I hear that some of you are saying there is no resurrection from the dead. And this is where he pulls out the, the what-if question. Verse 13, but, but, but he says, but if, but we could say, what if, what if there is no resurrection of the dead? Verse 13, then, then what? If you take the, re, the actual body resurrection of Christ, if you take it out of the, the things of first importance, does it really matter? Is it a key component or is it just kind of a throwaway component? Paul makes five points here, which I'm going to use for the rest of the sermon. It's kind of like five dominoes. Once you tip this first one over, all, of, all the rest are just going to fall in line. First big domino. If it's true that there is no resurrection from the dead, period, then, verse 13, there is no resurrection of Christ. If nobody is raised from the dead, then Christ himself, he's still in a tomb somewhere. So, so the... The, the, the news of first importance, this news has been decapitated. The, the main feature has been cut off. Because we're putting all of our hope in this. And, it, and if you lose this main feature, Paul's going to say, then Christianity can't go on living. It's such a key component that once you take the head off of this piece of news, then the rest of the components, they don't work either. 1980, a friend of mine, this is my senior year in high school. I know it looks like I probably graduated in 2002, but 1980, I go to the Dixie Classic Fair. That's the county fair in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, with a friend. We go ride some rides. We eat some really fine, healthy food at the fair. And then we wander by the tent. You know the tent. The salesperson outside 
trying to get you to pay a little extra money to see something freaky inside, right? Well, if you're an 18-year-old boy, you're going to stop and listen to the little sales pitch. So I stopped by, and the salesman's out there, and I wish I could remember exactly what he said, but he's like, if you have a heart condition, you will not want to pay extra to come into the tent. If you're pregnant, probably shouldn't pay extra to come into the tent. So we're all like, oh my gosh, what's in the tent? A woman is in the tent, and she has survived a terrible train accident. She was part of the fair. She had gone home. She was running late. She got on a train to catch up with the fair. The train derailed. And our favorite person of the fair, she's still alive, but in the accident, she lost her head. So am I going to pay to see this? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yes. Any amount of money now is coming out of my wallet to see this woman who's alive who has no head. So we walk in, you know, to the tent, and we see, I don't know what her name was. It really doesn't matter because she wasn't alive. But she's sitting there, and it was so painful because it was so ridiculous. Because it was a mannequin without a head, and you could hear the little machine on her back going, and her arms and legs were going like this, no head, and a tube going into her neck. That said, well, this is how she stays alive. Oh, I mean, my friend and I, we laugh about it still, right? Because it's so ridiculous There's, that you cannot, in case you don't know, medical emergency, you lose your head, the rest of your body dysfunctional. It's not going to stay alive. And it seems ridiculous, but that's exactly what these people in Corinth were trying to do. I want you to see that it's ridiculous. To say you believe in Christianity, but you don't actually believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. That's the whole thing. And if you don't have that thing, you can have a lot of other components that are moving around, but it's not alive, it's not worthwhile. And that's what Paul is so exercised about, to try to help his people understand, hey guys, if you're going to lose this one component, you're going to lose everything else. You might as well not be holding on to that. So we want to, uh, then that's the first domino that falls. And then these next four dominoes, they're just all going to fall behind it. If we say there really is no resurrection from the dead, verse 14 and 15, then our preaching is in vain. What in the world is Paul Phillips giving his life to? This is just an exercise in vanity. The word vain is hollow or empty. If you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead and you're a preacher, then you're nothing more than an empty suit. You know that term? It's usually used of a business person who has got a fancy degree, they look great, they got the, the right suit on, but they lack some kind of ability or character. And you'd say, you know what, they're just really an empty suit. And you can have a master's of divinity. You can look great in a robe. You can be a very powerful and persuasive speaker. But if your powerful, persuasive speaking eliminates Jesus from actually rising from the dead, then as a preacher, you are an empty suit. You do not have anything to offer. 
And that's what Paul is saying. Hey, you people who are saying Jesus didn't really raise from the dead, you're a bunch of empty suits. It's the main thing. And you might think, well, poor people in Corinth, they've got some preachers or some people inside the church saying there's no resurrection. Look, it's fine if somebody outside the church doesn't believe in all this. That's another discussion. But Paul's talking about people inside the church saying it. And unfortunately, that wasn't just limited to Corinth. That happens today. Actual transcript from a sermon. Preacher stands up and says, I suggest we confess openly that the resurrection is a myth. This is not to say that it's not true. I'm wondering where he's going here. To say the resurrection is myth is to acknowledge that it's not clear what happened historically when the Bible describes Jesus as being raised from the dead. I think, what? Not clear. How could it be more clear? It means that we don't have to believe in the literal truth. This is just, this feels like a snake getting into the tent. It means that we don't have to believe in the literal truth in any one of the biblical accounts of the resurrection. To say the resurrection is a myth is to recognize it as a symbol, a symbol of transcendent truth more than a historical fact. Now, when you go to a church that says that, that man is an empty suit. And you might as well go out and go have a pancake, right? Because there's not, he's not going to say anything else. He's just going to be the mannequin doing this the rest of the time. You're going to say, this is ridiculous. You've taken the, the core, you've hollowed out the core of our message. So Paul is trying to help us understand that that if we're preachers and we've just been delivering fake news the whole time, that really didn't happen, it was something symbolic, then we're an empty suit. We're, we're actually misrepresenting God, he says. The second thing, this is another domino here, verse 14 and verse 17. Not only is uh, the preaching in vain, notice your faith is in vain. You're sitting, I mean, I'm doing an exercise in vanity, but you all have come voluntarily to hear about this. And he says, your faith is in vain in verse 17, maybe more pointedly, you're still in your sins. This, on Christ the solid rock, I stand. Yeah, you don't stand there anymore. You're still in your sins. You thought he did something about that and he didn't do something about it. So you're still stuck. Christians believe in what theologians call the substitutionary atonement. It's a big word. But we're all familiar with substitutes. A teacher misses class and they call a substitute. An athlete gets hurt on the field and a sub comes in and takes their place. And each of us have this terrible death sentence hanging over our head. And substitutionary atonement means that Jesus died for our sins. He substituted himself. He died in our place. And on one of the last statements from the cross, remember when he cries out, It is finished. It is finished. It's an accounting term saying it's been paid in full. I paid it all the way down. I didn't do 99% and you do 1%. I did everything that needs to happen. 
And of course we say that's great that Jesus died on the cross for us, but how do we know he actually paid for our sin? I mean, he said he did, but saying something and being able to prove it is a different thing. What's the proof that he paid for our sin? What is the answer to that? The resurrection. It's like the receipt. You go to Walmart, right? You come out, you get accosted by an elderly person, right? I mean, see your receipt. So maybe somebody here works at Walmart, and I'm not saying... But, I mean, it's funny. You're coming down, right? And you see them, uh-oh, got, where's, where did I put my receipt? Right? What, they want to know, did you pay for what's in your basket, right? And if you can't give the receipt, guess what? You're stuck in Walmart for the rest of your life. That's, that's a bad place to be. I don't want to say a bad word there. But you see what's happening? It, it's, hey, we need some kind of proof that what you're saying you did at this register a few minutes ago actually happened. And if you take the bodily resurrection away from Christianity, you don't have a receipt. Lots of people died saying things, but we need to know what is the biggest tyrant that you and I face? Death. That's the one thing coming at us like a freight train for every human being. And we want to know, is, could, could somebody conquer death? And we don't want them to just to say. We want them to show a receipt that I paid for your sin. And if you take the bodily resurrection out of Christianity, you don't have a receipt. And you and I were stuck in our sins. And everybody knows they have things that they can't seem to get out of their mind. I know I said that. I know I did that. I know I cheated that person. I know I lied. I know I I did these things. What do you do with those things? You're stuck with them. Remember Lady Macbeth? She kept thinking that she could put people to death and, and just wash her hands and pretend like it would all go away. And you remember that famous scene, I think Act 5? She's washing her hands and what? She's got a blood spot on her hand. And she can't get it away. And what did she say? Out, out, damn spot. The great news, not advice, news. Jesus rose from the dead and he takes all those spots away. Amen? That's the gospel. And if you take that away, you're stuck. You're stuck in so many ways, but you're still stuck with that spot. You cannot wash it away in any other way. Two final dominoes you'll see quickly here. Verse 18. Everybody who's been, who's been a Christian that has already died, Paul uses this euphemism, go to sleep. They're all lost. In every... Funeral you've been to about how this person was a great godly Christian, it's too bad. You take away the resurrection, they're done. They're lost. I mean, you and I, we're still alive. Maybe if it's, a, if it's fairy tale, we can go do something else, but they're stuck. They don't have any hope. And then this final domino. For those who are still alive, verse 19. Verse 19. Of all people, most to be pitied. Why? Because we put all of our hope in the resurrection. 
And if it just turns out to be a fairy tale, and we put all of our energy on a fairy tale, what a waste. What a waste of a life. Stephen Hawking died this past week. Renowned scientist, incredible, incredible man. An amazing life story. Also, pretty well-known atheist. And here is one sentence about his belief about God. There is no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers. So that's how he views human beings. Computers that break down. That's a fairy story for people afraid of the dark. That's a fairy story. Now, I think it's very sad that Hawkins thought that people were nothing more than just aging computers and that heaven was a fairy story. But if he's right, if he's right, then we're the ones to be most pitied. Because we have put all of our hope, right? We've put all of our weight on this thing. That's just a feather. It's a fairy tale. We spend our entire lives saying, I'm deeply wounded in my soul. I'm deeply broken in my body. But I am trusting there is a day that Jesus is going to come back and he's going to mend my broken soul. He's going to mend my broken body. And I put my whole energy into that. And now it's nothing. It's a vapor. If it's true that there's no resurrection, then we are above all to be most pitied. And just think through this. We live for Christ, so instead of being first, what? We work for last. Instead of trying to be served, we, we serve. We're giving ourselves away to humanity, hoping that that's part of our overflowing joy from the Lord. And we've wasted our life. Verse 32, chapter 15, we should have, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. That's how we should have lived. What if the resurrection never happened? Then they, we don't have Christianity. Preachers who are preaching are empty suits. Your faith is empty. You're still left in your sin. What's the first word in verse 20? It's the best word in the Bible. But, yes. I mean, this is a terrible way to end the sermon, right? Oh, gosh. But, but, and you've got to come back next week. <laughs> Little trick preachers do. But, but it is true. That's the great thing is it actually did happen. And for the next two weeks, we're going to talk about the, the real life consequences of the truth of the gospel that Jesus Christ really came we really did strip him of his robe. Our sin put him to death. But we discovered he, he came back. And he came back with a mountain of grace, not fury. To come towards those who are running away and say, I'd love you. Let's pray. Lord, we, most of us here, 
we've staked our whole lives on this. We sing songs. We think about how our money goes out of our wallet according to your principles. We uh, think about who we should marry accordingly. We think about our morals accordingly. We, we come to church. We, we do so many things. We serve because we believe this is true. And, and seeing the consequences of it not being true has just galvanized us to say it's true. But there, there are some here who... They don't know. They don't know what to think. They're, they're confused or uncertain. And I pray that you would, would speak to that heart, help them continue to come back and hear about the, the news of the gospel and how it makes all the difference in the world right now that you actually rose from the grave and makes all the difference in the world in the future. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.